Good morning, everyone. We are, as uh, Tim said, reading in um, Acts 27 today, uh, starting at verse 13. And just for a bit of context, uh, Paul is on his way to Rome to face Caesar. So it's a good story. So either follow along in your own Bibles or follow along on the screen. When a gentle south wind began to blow, they saw their opportunity, so they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind, so we gave way to it and were driven along. As we passed to the lee of a small island called Corda, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure, so the men hoisted it aboard. Then they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together. Because they were afraid they would run aground on the sandbars of Certus, they lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. After they had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourself this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage, because not one of you will be lost, only the ship will be destroyed. Last night an angel of the Lord to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. On the fourteenth night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea, when about midnight the sailors sensed they were approaching land. They took soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings again and found it was 90 feet deep. Fearing that it would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it drift away. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After this, he took... After he said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to the God in front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. When daylight came, they did not recognise the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach. But the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The bow stuck fast and would not move, and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. 
The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were to get there on planks or on other pieces of the ship. In this way, everyone reached land safely. Good morning, everyone. It's great to be here with you. If you don't know me, my name is Ken. Um, and if you're new or newish to WBC, these cards are out on the welcome desk. So could you fill one of those in for us uh, so we can keep in contact with you? Um, one other request from me is um, please pray over this week for Immerse, WBC's youth group. We're away next weekend for a camp. We're heading out past Mittagong for a couple of nights of camping. And if you know what happened to us at Kick this year, please pray that it doesn't rain and wash us away, uh, that we'd have a great time together. Uh, we're really thankful for those who are providing food and equipment so that we can do this. So pray that we'd have a good, safe time as we grow together. Uh, as Tim has said, we're almost at the end of our series in Acts, just next week uh, to finish off chapter 28. We need God's enabling to understand what we've read this morning and the bits around it, um, so will you pray with me now? Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for the book of Acts, for the privilege it's been to work through uh, what you were doing uh, through Peter, through Paul, through others. Uh, and as we come towards the end of the book, uh, the, the action continues and it's heating up uh, and yet there's so much for us to learn. Uh, Luke has picked things and gone into a whole lot of detail about some things. He's left other things out uh, and he's obviously got a purpose in that. We pray that you give insights to us so that we'd understand why he wrote what he did to the original readers, that you'd enable us to understand it and more than that, by your spirit, uh, we would respond to this in ways that are pleasing to you. We ask it for your glory. Amen. Out of the frying pan and into the fire. It's a very well-known saying that describes escaping from a bad situation and ending up in one that's even worse. And it's not only the English language that has a proverb to describe this experience. In Thai, it's to flee from a tiger only to meet a crocodile. In Chinese, it's out of the tiger's cave and into the wolf's den. And in German, apparently, it's from the rain into the drain pipe. Evidently, this experience of going from a bad situation into an even worse one is universal. And I think that Out of the Frying Pan would make a great title for the biography of the Apostle Paul. There's a Christmas present for you. Uh, Paul seems to be constantly going from bad situations into worse ones. Now, some would evaluate all that Paul goes through and conclude that it's unfair or terrible luck. Others would conclude that Paul has bad karma, uh, or as we hear in chapter 28, that a, a goddess called Justice is out to get Paul. And yet, as people who have followed the journey all the way through the biblical account to here, we have to ask, what's really behind all these bad things that are happening? If Jesus is in control and Paul is God's chosen man to take the good news from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth, then, then why doesn't Jesus look after Paul a little bit better than he does? How does Jesus look after his people? That's what we're going to look at from this passage. How does Jesus look after his people? 
Well, chapter 27, which the start of it, which we didn't read, begins with the news that though Paul has been found innocent by Festus and Agrippa, he is nonetheless being transported as a prisoner to stand trial before Caesar in Rome. While he hasn't been set free, at least for now, his life has been spared. In further good news, Paul has Luke and Aristarchus with him for company, and the centurion Julius, who's in charge, even allows Paul to ask his friends in port for the provisions that he would need for the trip to Rome. But while the Jewish opposition's plans have not been able to kill Paul, it looks like the weather may have a go. Heading from Sidon to the Lee of Cyprus is not very far into the journey to Rome, and yet already the winds were against them, nature itself. Nevertheless, they press on to the mainland and they change ships in the port called Myra. So if you have a look on the map, they've gone down from Jerusalem, uh, or actually in Caesarea, they head up to Sidon, and then they head right up past Cyprus to Myra, right in the middle, uh, and that's where they change ships. They get on board a new ship and they continue on the journey. But from Myra, the trip gets even slower and more difficult. At the halfway point distance-wise, things are getting really tough. So tough that Paul warns them that if they press on, things are going to get really dangerous. But Julius, the centurion, ignores Paul's opinion. Surely advice from professional sailors is more to be trusted than a prisoner who's going to naturally be quite happy to postpone or perhaps even avoid trial in Rome. Given that they, as a, those all, all on board the ship, have to wait out the storm season somewhere, they can't be out on the open sea, they at least wanted to be in a comfortable port. And so they attempt to push on from Fair Havens to the town of Phoenix, a mere 50 kilometres further west. And yet Paul was right. Travelling on did bring unnecessary harm. No sooner had they left Fair Havens, travelling along the presumed safety of the southern coast of Crete, when a hurricane-force wind strikes. The professional sailors could do absolutely nothing to counter such overwhelming power. They're at the mercy of the storm. So terrified did they become that after two days they threw the cargo overboard. The very thing that they were doing, they're in business, they get rid of everything. After three days, they throw the tackle on, off, off the boat. Desperate attempts to lighten the ship in the, the vain hope of somehow keeping it afloat. You get to verse 20, which was read, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days. And the storm continued raging. We finally gave up all hope of being saved. My guess is that the we of verse 20 very possibly includes Luke himself, who's writing this account. Given their terrifying situation, they collectively conclude that nobody can save them. They're done for, which makes sense. I don't know if you've seen the movie True Spirit. It follows the journey of Jessica Watson, the youngest person to sail solo around the world. There are moments in the movie of peace and enjoyment, but the storm scenes are terrifying. At one point, her boat was even upside down four metres below the surface of the water. Even knowing that she was going to survive, I still found myself scared by a movie recreation of real events. Two millennia 
after Paul, with all the technology that you could possibly imagine, the open sea in a storm is still a very scary place to be. And so it may come across as a little insensitive or perhaps even downright nasty that when they are already feeling overwhelmed by their situation, Paul gives his I told you so speech, starting in verse 21. You know, the one in which the, the parent rebukes their child because they have eaten too much chocolate and now they do feel sick. The wife reminding her husband, not that this has ever happened to me, that she told him to drive the speed limit and how are they going to afford the fine now? But Paul isn't simply criticising. Rather, what he's saying is, you should have listened to me. But even though you didn't, I have good news for you. Only the ship is going to be destroyed. Everyone gets out alive. Which I assume the ship owner probably wasn't quite as excited about as everyone else. But notice that it is an improvement over the original warning that Paul gave back in verse 10. Men. I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and, and bring great loss to the ship and cargo and to our own lives as well. What we're supposed to notice is that Paul's confidence is far more than positive thinking. Paul has received a message from God himself. The storm is not a mistake or something outside of Jesus' control. As Jesus had spoken once to still a storm... So Jesus can speak a two-week-long storm into being. And there has been no change in Jesus' plan. As Paul had been told years earlier, he must go to Rome. And so Jesus was going to rescue Paul from this storm. That, that was a given. And as a bonus, everyone else on the ship was going to be saved too. Now, in spite of this promise and probably causing many to doubt whether the promise was true, the ship continues to be blown around by the storm. And at around midnight, after two weeks of relentless pummeling, the sailors' sixth sense kicks in and they realise that they are about to run aground. If they had held any faint hope that perhaps Paul was right, then I'm sure that the sailors are now certain that Paul's prediction was false. Measuring just how fast the water is getting dangerously shallow, experienced sailors know that their ship is about to be destroyed. Knowing that there, there is no possible way out, some of the sailors hatched a getaway plan that might work just for themselves. They're in the midst of letting down the lifeboat when Paul speaks again, addressing Julius, the centurion, and the soldiers, the ones that are supposedly in command over Paul's life. Paul says, you mustn't allow them to go through with this or you won't be saved. The whole group's lives, every, everyone on board that ship's lives were bound together and God intended to save them all, but therefore all of them needed to stay together on the ship. And this time, amazingly, Paul is listened to. Why Paul had such an influence at this point we can't be sure of was that the result of lengthy conversations with Julius, the centurion, since the storm had overwhelmed them. Was it the result of Paul's previous prediction coming true? Whatever it was, the centurion listens to his prisoner, orders the lifeboat to be cut loose, and then they all wait for the sun to rise, which it hasn't done for two weeks. As dawn approached, Paul speaks again, encouraging everyone on board to eat. Had they been fasting as they prayed to their individual gods like the sailors had done centuries before with Jonah? 
had the waves been so rough that, that no one's stomach would allow them to eat? We don't know, but again, Paul leads by example. He eats, encouraging the other 275 men to do likewise. And after eating all that they need, they throw the rest into the ocean. Not very environmentally friendly, is it? But as the sun rose that morning, it must have been an incredible relief. Seeing a sandy beach rather than the rocky cliffs they'd expected must have come as a joy to even the most experienced of sailors. Days ago, everyone but Paul had given hope, given up hope of escaping with their lives, but now it seemed like they'd been saved. But again, just when things finally seem to be going in the right direction, it's again out of the frying pan and back into the fire. As they head for the beach, the ship hits a sandbar and imminent disaster returns again. They're stuck and the ship is fast being destroyed by the crashing of the massive waves into the back of the boat, or a reminder that the storm is still raging. And as was done when in command of prisoners in the Roman Empire, the plan is made to ensure that no prisoners escape. Guilt is assumed and the death sentence is to be handed out. But Paul has made such an impact on Julius by this time that that God's plan to rescue each and every person on that boat is fulfilled through Julius. The centurion breaks protocol. He, He forbids the soldiers from killing anyone and he commands everyone to get to shore however they can. Some swim, some float on debris, Apparently that's the original surfers in the Bible, I'm not sure, but everyone makes it to shore. What an incredible relief. But more than just relief, it is amazing, isn't it? That God's plan for Paul to testify in Rome requires the change in heart of a Roman centurion. Two weeks earlier, Julius had had ignored Paul's advice, yet now the one assumed to have all of the power submits to the instructions of one of his prisoners. It's an amazing turnaround. And yet, this far into the book of Acts, we shouldn't be amazed at all. We have seen this over and over and over again, that Jesus is in full control. Even when circumstances appear to be saying the opposite, neither man nor nature nor any other thing can stand in the way of Jesus' plan to be to spread the good news from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. He can and he does use willing servants like the Apostle Paul. But he also uses opposition, unjust rulers, and even so-called natural disasters to get the message to exactly where it needs to go. I think that the closer we get to the end of the book of Acts, the stronger the challenge to our assumption that Jesus looking after us will always mean our comfort and security, that that things will turn out the way that we want them to. Jesus' care is just as likely to mean that he will dump us out of the frying pan and into the fire. The ultimate goal is not our comfort, but for Jesus to be made known far and wide. Jesus will look after us and he, he has promised us to be with us until the end of the age. But let's not mistakenly turn that promise into the false hope of an easy life. Now, coming back to chapter 28, the weather is still cold and raining, but they all arrive safely on the island of Malta. Paul, ever the servant leader, collects firewood to keep the fire burning. 
and yet again it's out of the frying pan and back into the fire. This time, Paul doesn't notice a deadly venomous snake hiding in the branch that he's picked up, and as the snake's about to get tossed into the fire, it strikes. In a time before anti-venom, the locals realise the implication. Paul is a dead man. Having been used along with Julius to, to rescue almost 300 men, Paul is now going to die. And the locals conclude that this must mean that Paul is a particularly bad man. While surviving almost certain death in the storm and, and then the shipwreck, the goddess Justice has not allowed Paul to live. But Paul's not going into the fire just yet. Instead, the snake does. And because Paul is unaffected by the bite, the Maltese people change their minds about him. Paul isn't a bad man. He must be a god. Talk about a fickle audience. <laughs> and yet in some sense, their response is the logical one. Where else could someone get the power to shrug off a deadly snake bite? If his strength is not from himself, well, who is it from? The chief official of Malta, a man named Publius, welcomes the boat people to his island sharing them with generous hospitality. Visas are granted on arrival, which maybe we Australians can learn something from, I don't know. The Maltese are not even Christians, and yet their first thoughts are not for themselves, but for those who are in need. And while enjoying his host's hospitality, Paul must have been sharing with them about Jesus. When he found out that Publius's father was unwell, Paul prayed, laid hands on him, and as a result, Publius's father was healed. This leads to many others on the island coming to Paul for similar help. And a happy three months are enjoyed, right when everything seemed to be at its darkest. It's a story that you couldn't make up, isn't it? And yet clearly it's not merely the happy ending to a fairy tale. Don't forget there is still one section to go next week. But neither is this just a twist in Paul's biography, saying that he's out of the frying pan and into a secluded island getaway. This is not teaching us that if you're faithful and brave and, and do what Jesus says, that everything works out in the end for you. Rather, it's a lesson in seeing the hidden hand of Jesus controlling things from behind the scenes. It is human nature to look for the reason behind why things happen. As the Maltese locals do it, it would be pretty natural to just assume that, that what goes around comes around. And so although the Maltese locals know absolutely nothing about this man, Paul, they assume that if someone escapes from a shipwreck and gets bitten by a snake, then he must have done something really bad. That thinking may be judged by us as simplistic. Our, our neighbours are much more likely to call it getting what you deserve. But neither of those conclusions are correct. The reason that Paul lives is because he must testify about Jesus in Rome. And so... As a part of Jesus' plan to make that take place, a snake bite has the opposite effect from what it normally would. Rather than killing Paul, it leads people to think that he's a god. And no doubt Paul quickly corrected them and told them about the one true God who did become a man, the very thing that we celebrate at Christmas. Not only that, that, that God-man named Jesus died to crush the head of an even more ancient and dangerous snake. Jesus rose again and he offers eternal life to, to anyone who will trust in him. Paul uses any and every opportunity to tell people about Jesus. 
It might seem from the outside that, that Paul was at the whim of religious and political leaders of out-of-control storms and circumstances. It would be easy to conclude that his chaotic life was out of the frying pan and into the fire, and yet nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus was in control in every situation, every motive, every action, every word of every person. Jesus is not frantically running around behind the scenes trying to fix things as they go wrong to ensure that somehow Paul will get to Rome. Jesus is watching over an incredibly intricate plan that incorporates people and their good and bad motives, as well as storms and snakes and sicknesses. Now, clearly, that plan doesn't always prevent terrible things happening to those who share the good news about Jesus. This is not a promise that snake bites won't kill Christians. Jesus' followers do get sick. They get hurt, they get abused and even killed. Paul's life here is spared. Stephen's way back in chapter 7 wasn't. And yet all of the good and the bad, the support and the opposition is moving things unstoppably towards people from everywhere hearing the good news about Jesus. There is so many things in this passage, but just a couple of principles that I want to pick up in closing. Firstly, is that clearly from this passage, worldly wisdom is not to be trusted. Worldly wisdom should not be trusted by Christians. According to the world, the sailors know best. The the centurion has undisputed power. A snake bite is the expression of cosmic justice. But life doesn't work that way. More often than not, God flips things on their head. Prisoners tell those in authority how to act. Safety comes by keeping everybody together in danger. And while we each have been given a brain by God to think and evaluate, Acts shows us godly decisions being made in a whole variety of ways. Commands given in a vision that you just say, how high? Fleeing from angry mobs, following a pattern of go to the Jews first and then Gentiles. Paul rejected John Mark based on bad experience. He he cast the demon out of a slave girl because he got exasperated by her calling out after them. The variety shows us that there is no easy recipe to follow the, the five steps to guarantee that you're somehow in God's will. But clearly, as we make decisions... We should be very cautious in trusting what is merely logical or sensible or common sense. Now, this doesn't mean that we reject wisdom. Rather, our trust, as we think through wisdom, should be in Jesus, whether it's going to the doctor, praying for the miracle, or as we've seen in the case of Andrew Bedo, doing both of those together. And so as Jesus used ex-fishermen, to speak to the religious elite in Jerusalem while sending an elite teacher from Jerusalem to the lowly Gentiles, don't be surprised if, on occasions, Jesus' choices and instructions don't match what is strictly logical or what the world thinks is right. And secondly, to apply the point that I made earlier, Jesus is in control. Jesus is in control. Now, I know from talking with some of you that some are currently in the middle of a terrible metaphorical storm. Some of you are not even sure if there actually is a way out. My guess is that there are many more who feel the same who I haven't spoken about, haven't spoken through the details with. 
Now, maybe at the moment that's not you. Your life is more like Jessica Watson when the wind's behind her and she's racing smoothly to her destination with the sun shining down on her. Whatever your situation is today, know that Jesus is with you. It is far too easy for us to conclude that Jesus has deserted us when things go pear-shaped and and assume that he's with us when things are going well. But maybe like Paul, Jesus has led you into your situation, whether it's good or bad, in in which he wants to use you in that situation to impact others for God. I personally find it so hard to trust Jesus when things don't turn out the way that I hoped they would. But that's when I need to trust him most of all. I think possibly the hardest thing in applying this principle in our own lives is that unlike Paul, we haven't been given the promise that we're going to appear in Rome, which sadly means that that there is no universal promise that everything is going to work out how we might want it to. What is absolutely crystal clear is that all things are worked out in alignment with Jesus' mission. And according to Romans 8, 28 and 29, so we will be made more like Jesus. Some people would argue that makes us all just pawns in a giant cosmic chess game. That's not what the Bible is presenting to us. While Jesus moves things towards his end, everyone makes their own choices for which they are responsible. How does Jesus look after his people? I would say better than we're able to look after ourselves. It's not simple and it's really easy. Sometimes it does feel like we're out of the frying pan and into the fire. But our lives are in the hands of the one who knows what's best for us and knows what we're best for. Are you going to trust him or are you going to try and work things out on your own? I know what Acts chapter 27 and 28 are advising us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for the confidence that this passage gives us that you are in control. We can evaluate our own lives by just looking at what's going on and think that that's not true, that things are out of control and and going bad. Uh, And yet we see that you are the one who is taking all things toward its good end. Thank you that you are a good God who never lets go of your people, who takes us through the midst of storms and in the middle of that is able to use us to have others understand more of how good a God you are, that you're a rescuing God. Lord, help us not to trust in the things of this world, the wisdom of this world, but instead rely completely on you. We pray it for your glory. Amen.